John 12. Bo mentioned today is Palm Sunday. It's the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem uh, to a lot of fanfare. Uh, it's the, the first day of, again, this Holy Week or Passion Week. We're going to look at John's version of the, it's called the Triumphal Entry. His is the briefest. It has the least amount of detail. But he does something interesting. He, he puts a story on the front end of the Triumphal Entry that nobody else does. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have this story in this particular place, and it's Jesus being anointed by Mary. And so we're going to look at both of those stories together and see see what the Lord would say to us. So we're going to start in John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who, had late, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So set up the action so this is the Friday before Palm Sunday. So today's Sunday, so two days ago, a week before Jesus is crucified. He's in Bethany, a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house. And this is the Lazarus who he'd raised from the dead about a, a couple of weeks before this. And there's, it's not a regular meal. It's like a party or a banquet. And at a party or a banquet like that, you would recline. There's a picture up here. It shows you how they would eat. That's actually a artistic rendering of the Lord's Supper. So don't worry about the people around it, but more the position. So you would be reclining with your face towards the table and your feet kind of behind you. And so Mary comes up and she anoints Jesus with this really expensive perfume. And she anoints his feet, maybe just because practically that was the easiest Part of his body to get to. She's not crawling under the table to get to his feet. Again, they're, they're exposed. And she anoints his feet with this, it's, it's called nard. It's an expensive perfume. It's imported and it's worth a year's wages. That literally says it's 300 denarii. A denarius was a silver coin. And that's how much a day laborer would get for each day that he worked. And so 300 denarii, that's a year's wages. You're not working on the Sabbath. You're not working on festival days. And so for us, maybe the, the, a minimal parallel would be minimum wage, seven twenty-five an hour, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. That's $14,500. That's the minimum that this bottle of perfume is worth. And, and their family's not rich. Martha's serving the meal. They don't have servants doing that. So she's not a... They're not rich. Mary is, is unattached. She's unmarried, whether she's a widow or has never been married. We don't know. But if you're not necessarily attached to a man, it's a, it's a precarious position for a woman to be. She's attached to Lazarus, but he's already died once. And so I don't know how secure she's feeling there. And, and she dumps, it's a lot of perfume. It's this much. It's about 12 ounces. 
You know, there's some people talk about these women in those times wearing these little uh, things around their neck with perfume in it. Like it's it's nobody's wearing that around their neck. It's it's a lot of perfume that she pours on Jesus's feet. And, and the most unusual for me, the most unusual element of all of it is that she uses her her hair to wipe his feet. And that's odd to me. So women's. Women didn't let their hair down in public, so she does that. I, I think all of this is intentional. It's, it's her house, so she would know where the towels are if she wanted to. If she, she would, she would know if she wanted to dry his feet. She would know where the towels are, or you know, she's wearing a dress. She could use her sleeve or the, the hem of her dress or something. She's not. She's not washing his feet though. That probably would have happened when he came in. He probably washed his own feet when he came in from. Walking when he when he came into the dinner, she's anointing his feet, and I don't think she she's not trying to get the oil off with her hair. Hair's not absorbent. That's not what she's trying to do. She's not pouring this much of this really expensive perfume on his feet to then immediately try to wipe it off. She's spreading it with her hair. It says that the fragrance fills the whole room. And I don't know why she chose her hair instead of her hands. I guess, I don't know, hygiene habits, you probably wash your hands a lot more often than you wash your hair. And so maybe for her, it's kind of a remembrance thing. They say what smell is the sense most tied to memory. She wouldn't have known that, but she may have intuitively picked up on that or something. And so she would have had the smell in her hair until she washed her hair again. And so maybe for her, it's this kind of picture of devotion and intimacy and again just wanting to remember and then we have judas and his rebuke and it's very strong and it's self-righteous and he's trying to shame her this money could have been better spent you could have given it to the poor and john editorializes and said he judas doesn't actually care about the poor he was a thief he kept the money bag and he would help himself and so if mary sells a perfume for 300 denarii and gives the money to jesus to distribute to the poor then judas is gonna be able to skim some and then judas comes to mary's defense just mary doesn't say a word the whole time jesus comes to mary's defense and he says leave her alone leave her alone she's kept this or it was intended, I think the NIV says, and literally it's, she's kept this perfume. There's this idea that this perfume, whether Mary knew it or not, has been set aside for just this purpose. He says, you're always going to have the poor with you. He's not, he's not devaluing the poor. He's the one who said, what you do to the least of these you do to me. He's not, he's not devaluing them at all. He's just saying that this perfume was set aside for this function. It was for his burial. And I, I think Mary knew what she was doing. She didn't know the significance of what she was doing. For sure. And Jesus is the one that gives the significance. He interprets the action. This is for my burial. So the way people were buried in the first century, and you see it with, with Jesus, we'll see it in a week. You're, so uh, you're, you're, you die and you're put in a tomb and you're left in the front room of the tomb for about a year to decompose. And then your family would come back in and they would get your bones and put them in a box and put you in a more permanent place in the back of the tomb. And it smells bad for a year. And so uh, you, would, uh, you would anoint a body with spices so that the, the smell of those spices would 
mask the smell of decomposition. You can see that with Jesus' death. Nicodemus wraps him in 75 pounds worth of spices, and the women go to the tomb on Sunday morning in order to anoint him with even more spices. That's common Jewish burial practices. You weren't embalmed. They put those spices on you so nobody would smell you while you were decomposing. And so what Jesus says is what Mary has done, this fragrance filling the whole room, this oil, it's a prophetic act. She's, she doesn't know that I'm going to die, but I'm going to die. This is in advance of my burial. He gives significance to what she's doing. And then you have this response of the Jewish leaders, which is, it's just, I guess it's ironic. It's, you know, they're, they're saying, you know what we need to do is we need to kill this guy that God just raised from the dead. That's their summary of everything that's gone on. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from dead, and they said, hey, we need to kill him again because it's making Jesus too popular. Verse 12, the next day, so this is actually Sunday, so you skip Saturday. Saturday's the Sabbath, you can't do anything. So this is the next day that you could actually do something. So Sunday, that's today, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Many people, because they had heard that Jesus had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So again, a couple of days later, Sunday, or the next day they were allowed to work, Jesus is going into Jerusalem and there's two crowds that are mixing with each other. So you have a crowd coming from Bethany with Jesus, and all of them were part of this resurrection. That the resurrection of Lazarus, you can go back and read about it in John 11, was a public event. There were, there, there were witnesses, many of them. And so you've got that crowd, maybe the same crowd that was with Jesus that night at the dinner party given in his honor, maybe at least some of them. They're going with Jesus to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem there's a huge crowd already because it's the Passover, so the Passover is one of three Jewish festivals where uh, pilgrims, Jewish men, were required to go to Jerusalem to worship. One of three every year. At least 100,000 pilgrims, maybe more, are there. Swelling the population. And again, it's a Passover festival. So what they're doing is they're remembering God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. So that's the story of Exodus. Through That's Moses, the plagues, crossing the Red Sea. You've got that. So that's what's swirling around in their mind. They're in Jerusalem, this 100,000 plus pilgrims, to celebrate and to remember God delivering them, their ancestors, from, the at that point, the world superpower, Egypt. They're hearing stories from this other crowd about Jesus raising someone from the dead, they pull out these palm branches, which is a, it's a national symbol, and they're, they're waving. It would be like us waving American flags on the 4th of July. It's that kind of patriotic, nationalistic type vibe is going. And you can imagine what that feels like. They're quoting from Psalm 118. And if you go back and read that psalm, it's a psalm about God giving victory to his people, to the nation of Israel, against their enemies. So all of that is what's swirling around in the air. 
You've got this idea of you've got people waving their American flags. You've got people uh, shouting, God has delivered us in the past. It's the, the whole context is God's deliverance of his people militarily and politically. And what Jesus does in the midst of that is he gets on a donkey. And not just any donkey, he gets on a, on a baby donkey, on the colt of a donkey. And he starts riding in. Jesus has walked 3,100 miles over the last three years. It's two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's, he's not tired. He can, he can walk. We don't see him riding anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only time we ever see him riding. He's intentionally fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9 and 10. About, and so what you have, Bo earlier talked about Jesus being a conquering king. And in the minds of the crowd, it looks like being a conquering king. In their mind, it's someone like David. Who's going to have a sword, who can kill Goliath, who's going to lead an army. It's Psalm 118. God, cut down our enemies. Do righteous works on our behalf. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, who saves us from this Roman Empire. That's what they're thinking of. They're thinking of Moses, who said there's going to be another prophet who's going to come after me. Listen to him. They're thinking if Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, certainly, certainly he can defeat the Roman army. Then Jesus gets on this little donkey and kind of waddles into Jerusalem. You can see the difference between someone who rides a war horse and someone who rides a donkey. One's intimidating. The other's not so much. They're short little strides and they're stubby legs. And that's what he's coming in on. And he's saying, that's not the kind of king I am. I'm the king. I'm the kind of king from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. I'm humble. I ride on a donkey, not on a war horse. I'm actually getting rid of all the war horses. I'm breaking the bow. I'm bringing peace. But it's not coming the way you think it's coming. It's not peace through a sword. He's trying to, to redefine their expect. They're saying this is the kind of king that you're going to be. As they wave their palm branches and shout from Psalm 118. And he gets on a donkey and says, no, this is actually the kind of king that I'm going to be. And then you see again the response of the religious leaders. They continue to completely miss it. The disciples don't understand. The resurrection is the key to understanding everything about Jesus. And it hadn't happened yet. So they don't get it until later. And the religious leaders continue to oppose the work of God. And so I was thinking about that. This two, these two passages, it's interesting to me. I don't know if this is more information than you want. This story about Mary anointing Jesus, it actually happens. Um, there's a very similar story in Matthew and in Mark. And some people say it's the same story and some people say it's different. There's a chart up there on the screen. You can decide if you think it's the same story or if it's different. There are lots of similarities. In both cases, Jesus is in Bethany. He's at a house. He's anointed by a woman. Uh, with oil that's worth 300 denarii. She's, this woman is rebuked and said this money could be given to the poor. Jesus defends this woman by saying you'll always have the poor with you. She did this for my burial. So all that sounds exactly the same. But then there are a lot of details that are different. Uh, Matthew and Mark, the woman's unnamed. And John, it's Mary. Matthew and Mark, it happens on Tuesday. John, it happens on Friday. Matthew and Mark say it's, it's, it's some people or, or the disciples that rebuke her. And, and John, we see it's Judas that does it. And, and Matthew and Mark, he, she, they're at the house of Simon the leper. And John, they're at the house of Mary, Martha. 
and Lazarus. There's some things Jesus says in Matthew and Mark he doesn't say in John. He talks about her doing a beautiful thing and what she's done will always be told in remembrance of her. And there, there, again, it, it ultimately maybe doesn't matter. You can decide if it's one or two. There is a, um, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see this concept. They're called doublets where Jesus does the same thing or similar things in order to teach the same lesson. If you've ever been a teacher, you know how important repetition is. He feeds 5,000 people and then he feeds 4,000 people and they seem really, really similar. He's trying to make the same point. He's just teaching it through two different uh, scenarios. So it, it could be that this is a doublet. The same thing happened within just a handful of days and God's trying to make the same point. Or it could be that John has moved a story chronologically. He's moved it from Tuesday to, to Friday. Either way, he's intentionally recording something that no one else does in a place that nobody else does. And it's interesting to me to think about why did John put it here? Again, either he saw it as important and Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't see it as, as important and so they didn't include it, or John moved it from Tuesday to Friday in order to make a theological point. And that doesn't at all undermine the, the validity of it. In ancient, you could do that. You could do that for sure. All of these books are theological. They're definitely historically sound, but they're making a theological point. And so that's what, is that what John is doing? And what is the point in putting both of these stories next to each other? Why this anointing followed by his entry into Jerusalem as a king? So in the Old Testament, kings were anointed before they took office. Uh, a prophet, almost always the prophet, would take some oil and dump it on the king's head. And that was kind of saying this man is set apart to be a king and this man is equipped. It, it was both of those things. It was a symbol of being set apart or consecrated and a symbol of being empowered or equipped to do whatever that role was that you were set apart to do. In this case, be the king. Samuel the prophet anoints Saul. He anoints David. Nathan the prophet anoints David's son, Solomon. You can read through First uh, Kings and you can see most of the kings are anointed, and, and the assumption is they all were by the prophet of the time. Jesus is anointed as well, but in a very different way. He's anointed by Mary, who there's no indication that she's a prophet at all. What she does is prophetic in that she is anticipating something that would happen in the future, but she herself is not a prophet. Kings were anointed. Their oil was poured on their head. For Jesus, oil was poured on his feet. And so there, there's, there's something there There's a, between those things, this difference in anointing. And I think it speaks to the different type of king that Jesus would be. So there's a, I had this line from a song kind of bouncing around in my head. It was from a band that was big in Athens 20 years ago when I was in Athens called the Vigilantes of Love. How about that for a name? But the line for their song was this, the cross was the place of his coronation speech. And if you think about those two things, they don't go together. A cross is a place where criminals are killed. And a coronation speech is what a king says on his first day in office. And you don't think about a cross being about a, a place where a king begins his reign. But you can make a case that Jesus' reign as king began on Good Friday. And Mary, she doesn't know. She doesn't know what she's doing. She knows what she's doing. She doesn't know why she's doing it. I think she's inspired by God to pour this oil on Jesus' 
feet. I absolutely think it was a deliberate decision on her part. I don't think it was an emotional reaction. I don't think it was spontaneous at all. I think it was deliberate and intentional and planned on her part. Again, I don't think she knew why it was important. She just knew, hey, this is, I'm going to do this. I feel inspired to do this. And it was a genuine act of devotion from Mary towards Jesus. And she's anointing him as king as she's anointing him for his burial and trying to try to, in your mind, hold both of those things together. One anointing that has two meanings. One is she's preparing his body for burial and knowing she doesn't know, we know. His death will be the, the first day of his rule and his reign. As you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first time Jesus is explicitly and publicly proclaimed as king is when? It's when Pilate nails the sign to the cross. This is the king of the Jews. You don't see that before. On his, the cross, it's the place of his coronation speech. It's where his rule begins. This is the king who rides on a donkey, not on a war horse. This is the king who says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I don't know that Mary got all of that, but I think that's why John put both of those stories together. It's for us to see. We sing that song, Save Your King. It's for us to see it's who he is. Kings don't die for their subjects. They may ask their subjects to die for them. But they don't die for their subjects. And Jesus' first act as king is to die for us. The second thing I was thinking about with this, this contrast between Mary and Judas, between Mary and the crowds, between Mary and the religious leaders. Mary's the only one who gets it. She doesn't say a word. She's the only one who doesn't talk. Judas talks. The crowds talk. The religious leaders talk. Mary never says a word. She communicates very powerfully. And I would say accurately her value and her estimation of who Jesus is and what an appropriate response is. Again, I don't think it was an emotional or a spontaneous act that Mary pouring this perfume on Jesus' feet. I think it was deliberate, intentional. It was something that she planned. She knew when the party was going to be, and she decided to do this. And so I think you can see there, I think, her level and depth of Devotion. It's interesting, in 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites begin to cry for a king. They want a king. They're tired of having judges. They want to be like the other nations. Samuel's a prophet, and he's upset, and he's saying, y'all are rejecting God. He's your king. And God says, Samuel, don't, like, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. It's okay, but you tell them this. You tell them the king is going to do this. And there's just, I'm just going to skim. I'm not going to read everything. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his right. So here's how the king's going to treat you. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will assign your sons to be commanders of thousands and fifties and others of your sons to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your wine and give it to his officials, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkey he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves will become his slaves. So what God is saying is that's what kings do. That's how kings act. Even kings of Israel, that's how they act. And then you think about Mary taking this jar of perfume, 
worth a whole year's salary. And for a security blanket, it's all she's got. When Lazarus is dead, she, has, there's, she doesn't have a male who she's connected to to take care of her. So even if you say, well, you know, these men could get a denarius today. A woman's not getting anything. And she willingly gives that to Jesus. And you contrast what God says, this is how earthly kings, this is what they take. And you think about what she gave. And there's something there. Jesus is the kind of king that inspires that level of devotion. He doesn't have to take. When he captures our heart, we willingly give. Do you see the difference between those two? You think about the crowds, and crowds are fickle. And they're, they're willing to acknowledge Jesus as king as long as he meets their expectation of what a king should be. As long as they think, well, he's going to come in and use his power and he's going to throw this yoke of oppression off of us, we're fine. And you see, within a few days, they've all abandoned him. They've all deserted him. As soon as he's arrested, everybody bails and say he's not the man that we thought he would be. And some portion of that crowd is yelling crucify. Maybe not all of them, but some portion of of them are, and the rest of them have deserted him for sure. He hadn't lived up to their expectations. Crowds are fickle. The religious leaders are just hostile. They don't get it. They're not able to... Lazarus is standing in front of them who was dead a month ago. And they can't even entertain the idea that maybe, just maybe, they should listen to Jesus. Maybe they, they just say, let's kill Lazarus again. That's the solution. Let's kill Jesus, and then also let's kill Lazarus. It's better for one man to die for a nation than for a whole nation to suffer. That's what they come up with after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. If he continues to do this, all of, all of the people are going to gather to him, and the Romans are going to get mad, and we're going to lose our temple and our place. They're worried about what they're going to lose if Jesus continues, if people are allowed to follow him. So let's kill Jesus, and now that Lazarus is also like exhibit A of his Ministry, let's get rid of him as well. There's a hostility there. Judas, though, he's the most devastating. The crowds didn't know Jesus. The religious leaders didn't know him. They only knew him from a distance. Judas had spent three years with him, eating with him, and walking these 3,100 miles with him, listening to him preach to crowds, listening to him teach just to the twelve. It looks like maybe even the whole back half of his ministry, maybe 18 months, he devoted to the 12. For sure, nine months, just to them. It's intense time just with him. They'd seen him work all of these miracles, the ones that are recorded and all the ones that we don't know about. Judas was an eyewitness. He was in on all of that. He was who? Who worked miracles, who proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, who healed the sick. He was one of those guys. He personally didn't just witness, he personally experienced Jesus as the king, the the, the power of God through Jesus. And yet he still, here's his response. He's not worth 300 denarii. That's what he's saying. He's not worth it. That money could be better spent somewhere else. Give him the benefit of the doubt. That's what he's saying. That money could be better spent Somewhere else. There are all these poor people. It would be better spent on them than him. He spent three years with Jesus, and his heart still hasn't been captured at all. 
His heart hasn't been captivated by Jesus. And so he can say, sounding righteous and pious, Mary, that was a waste. That was a waste. Put aside his character as a thief. Just look at that one statement. Money could have been best spent somewhere else. That's a challenge to me, approaching this Passion Week or this Holy Week, to think about her devotion and to think about mine. It's not a contest for sure, but it does challenge me to think about what if I saved up a year of my salary? How long would that take me to do that? And if I saved up a year, would I just literally pour it out? Like, would I do that? Can I, I can't even imagine having that conversation with my spouse. Can you? What about you single women? Can you imagine telling your dad, hey, this is what I'm going to do with this money, dad? Like, how does that go? At, at the best maybe you could say is Judas was being practical. I don't know that that's what it was. It seems like he's tepid. He's, he's lukewarm. Again, his heart hasn't been captured. Now think about me and has mine been captured? Do I, without even using words like Mary, do I express my devotion for Jesus? And again, it's not a contest. It's not who can sacrifice the most. But absolutely what's in us comes out of us. And the things that we most love, we, those things get our best. They get our best time. They get our best money. They get our best attention. And I wonder how many times I say, you know what, that money could be better spent somewhere else. That hour could better be spent somewhere else. Has my heart been captivated by Jesus, by this Savior King, by this one who the first act of his reign is to die for me? Again, I don't want you to hear guilt. What are you going to give? What are you going to sacrifice? But I want you to hear, though, is a challenge. Are, are you Mary? Has he captured your heart? Are you devoted to him? And as I do think she was led by the Lord. As you're led by the Lord, are you? Yes, whatever you want. You're worth it. You're worth it. Whatever it is, it's better spent on you. Even my life, it's better spent on you. Whatever it is, it's always better spent on you. We're going to close with communion, and that's where we always start. We don't start with what we can give him. We always start with what he has given to us. Mary is responding to Jesus. She's not initiating with him. And so as you come forward and take communion this morning, that's what I want you to have in your mind. This is, this is what he's given to you. Again, Romans 8.32 the one who did not spare even his son, how much more will he give us all good things? And so we start again with what God has done for us in Jesus. Think this week, this Passion Week. What would it look like for you to give just a little bit of time to say, God, capture my heart. Captivate me with your love and with your goodness. God, I've taken communion 253 times in my life with this time. Would you bring new life into this? Would you allow the weight of what you've done to sink into my heart? Would I recognize that your first act as a king was to die to make relationship with me possible? 
the theme for this week with communion is God, uh, what is it? God, what's the thing? God satisfies our desires with good things. So even as we talk about what we're giving to him, again, we start with what he's given to us. And we're all, we're just responding. That's all we're doing. It's that song that we sang. It's your breath. It's, we're, that's what we're, we're singing with the breath that you gave us. We're giving the money that you've given us. I'm giving the time that you've already given to me. It's all yours anyway. And so I hope that frees you up. It doesn't constrict you, but I hope it frees you up to say, God, would you capture my heart? Would you move in me at such a level that as you lead, I'd say you're worth it. You're worth the time. You're worth the money. You're worth the effort. You're worth the energy. Whatever I've got, you're worth it all. I want you to pray with me now as Bo comes back up. If you're helping with communion, you can come forward as well. The way we take communion here is you'll come forward a row at a time and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. And we'll have gluten-free communion up here for you also. If you don't feel like your heart's in a spot where you want to take communion, I'd encourage you to come forward anyway and just, just loop right back to your seat. That'll be easier than trying to stay in your seat. And you don't need to feel pressure to take communion for sure. So in your own heart, maybe just think about those four groups of people. And who do you relate to the most this morning? Do you relate to the religious leaders? Would you say, you know what? I'm actually pretty hostile to Jesus right now. I'm not, I don't acknowledge him as Messiah. I don't acknowledge him as king. And if that's where you are, the best thing you can do is just be honest about that. And my encouragement to you is over the course of this week, between now and next Sunday, I'm assuming if you're here today, you're going to be here on Easter. Ask the Lord. Make yourself real to me. Make yourself real to me. Give me eyes to see. Are you the crowds? Are you fickle? You're all in when he's living up to your expectations. And when he disappoints you, when he doesn't do things the way you want or in the time you want, you tend to pull back from him at that point. What would it look like for you this morning to say, capture my heart, God. I want to be fully devoted to you. It's interesting when Lazarus dies, Jesus lets him die. He's only a couple of miles away. He gets word in time to get there and heal him. And he says to his disciples, let's wait. Let's just wait. He lets him die. And then he gets to Bethany and talks to Martha. And he says, get me Mary. And Mary comes running and her first thing she does. Is fall at his feet. Even disappointed, she says, God, if you, Jesus, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Even disappointed, she still, she still takes the posture of a disciple. She falls at his feet. She's not fickle. If you find yourself in that spot, the, the, the solution, the way out is not to try harder It's to yield more. God, capture my heart. There's a part of me that you haven't won over. 
God, win me over. Are you like Judas? You're in the you're on the team, you're in the club. Don't think about his betrayal. Just think about this one scene. You spent time with him, you know him, you've seen things. But you're just not sure he's worth all of it. Again, maybe on your give you the benefit of the doubt, you're practical minded. But honestly, are you tepid? Are you lukewarm in your love? God, capture my heart. Capture my heart. Captivate me with your love and with your goodness. Are you merry this morning? Are you all in, fully devoted? He's worth it. Whatever he asks for, he gets. Nothing is better spent anywhere else than on him. So again, don't hear that as pressure to write a check or pressure to start volunteering somewhere. That's not it at all. Hear that as an invitation to be so captivated by him, by his love and by his goodness, that you freely and willingly give the best. He's not a king who comes and takes. He's a king who is so good. Who's so good. You recognize that goodness. It stirs in you a desire to give. So Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you speak to each one of us as your children? Those who are far, those who are near, those who are struggling, those who are just rocking along. God, I pray that you would captivate all of our hearts, that you would capture us with your love and with your goodness. God, I pray particularly for people like me who are more thinkers than feelers. God, would you show us what it is to be captivated in, in according to our Psalm 139? What does that look like for us? God, I pray for any in here who are prone to hear a message like this and to run off and try to perform and do more. God, I pray that they, as they come forward and take communion, would begin just by resting in what you've done for them. We'll have ministry teams who are up in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. If you desire for God to capture your heart on a deeper level, you can ask them to pray for you. You may want to go back to your seat and just engage in worship. But that idea of God satisfying our desires with good things, if there's something that you've been desiring for a period of time and you're getting frustrated, would you let our ministry teams pray with you that God would satisfy that desire with something good even this week?